Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. All right, well, as we transition and those who are going to Little Worship, um, y'all can roll out at this time. Uh, if you are staying in here with us, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38, or uh, you can follow along in your, your bulletin. Um, words are printed there. Make sure this is on. Um, let's pray before we begin. Uh, Father, we, we find out from your word in the Old Testament that for whatever reason, uh, your people have a knack for having uh, wanton cravings in the wilderness, uh, for wanting to go back to slavery, uh, for wanting to go back to what we know, uh, Lord, um, sometimes kicking and screaming, uh, we come. But Lord, at the same time, we know that you, through your Spirit, you give the gift of belief. And when you give the gift of faith, uh, there's joy that comes, and there's peace that comes. Uh, so Lord, this morning, as we begin our time in the Advent season, uh, pray that you would come. Through your Spirit, give us peace. Teach us. We ask this in Christ. Amen. You know, throughout life, it's important to ask the question, why, over and over again. You know, as you're in high school or junior high and your coach is making you run all those sprints, and you know it's because your coach hates you, right? You got to ask why. Why is coach doing this? Um, well, it's, because, it's not because coach hates you, though. He might. Uh, it's because coach wants you to know what it feels like to dig deep and to know that you still have something left. You know, coach wants you to know that in the fourth quarter when everyone else is tired that, that you're still standing and that you know what it's like to shoot a, a three-point shot when like your heart rate is off the charts. Um, you know, knowing why is helpful. And, and you know, if that is true of athletics and of parenting and of business, then how much more so is that also true of, of following Christ? Like, why do we do what we do? Um, you know, why do we read the Bible? Why do we pray? Why do we gather together regularly and, and worship and, and listen to teaching? Why? Um, well, as we begin our time of Advent, I, I want to share a parable that I read in a, a book that Richard Simmons, not the, uh, the fitness Richard Simmons, but another Richard Simmons wrote. Uh, he quoted a parable by Gordon MacDonald that captures the why of Christians. This is why we do what we do. And so see if you can see yourself in this parable uh, before we read God's Word. And the parable that he wrote is called The Wreck of the Persona. Um, he wrote this. He said, Once a very prosperous person decided to build for themselves a sailing yacht. Their intention was that it would be the most talked about boat that ever sailed. They were determined to spare no expense or effort. And as they built the yacht, they outfitted it with colorful sails, complex rigging, and comfortable conveniences in the cabin. The decks were made from teak wood. All the fittings were custom made of polished brass. And on the stern, painted in gold letters so everybody could see, was the name of the boat, the Persona. 
As they built the persona, they could not resist fantasizing upon the anticipated admiration and applause from the members of the yacht club at the launching of their new boat. In fact, the more they thought about the praise that was soon to come, the more time and attention they gave to the boat's appearance. Now, and this seems reasonable, because no one would ever see the underside of the boat. They saw little need to be concerned about the kill, or for that matter, anything uh, that had anything to do with you know, distributing weight or ballast on the underside. The boat builder was acting with the perceptions of the crowd in mind, not the seaworthiness of the vessel. Seaworthiness seems not to be important while one is in dry dock. Why should I spend money or time on what is out of sight? When I listen to the conversations of the people at the club, I hear them praising only what they can see. I never remember anyone admiring the underside of a boat. Instead, I sense that my yachting colleagues really find exciting the color and shape of sails, brass fittings, cabin, decks, potential speed, and the skill that wins the Sunday afternoon regattas. Is that how you say that? Regatta, regatta? race. And so driven by such reasoning, the person built their boat, and everything that would be visible to the people soon began to gleam with excellence, but things that would be invisible when the boat entered the water were generally ignored. The builders sorting out priorities proved to be correct. Members of the boat club said their efforts to build the grandest boat in the history of the club would certainly result in their selection as commodore. When the day came for the maiden voyage, the people of the club joined dockside. A bottle of champagne was broken over the bow, and the moment came for the builder to set sail. As the breeze filled the sails and pushed the persona from the club's harbor, the builder stood at the helm and heard what, he, or what they had anticipated for years. The cheers and well wishes of envious admirers who said to one another, Our club has never seen a grander boat than this. This builder will make us the talk of the yachting world. Well, soon the persona was merely a blip on the horizon. As it cut through the swells, its builder gripped the rudder with a feeling of fierce pride. They were seized with an increasing rush of confidence that everything, the boat, the boating club, and even the ocean, was theirs to control. But a few miles out to sea, a storm arose. There were gusts of winds and sudden waves about 15 feet and the persona began to shudder, and water swept over the sides. Bad things, bad things began to happen. And the poise of the captain began to waver. Perhaps the ocean wasn't theirs after all. Within minutes, the persona's colorful sails were in shreds. The splendid mass was splintered in pieces, and the rigging was draping all over the bow. The teakwood decks and the lavish cabin were soaked. And then before the person could prepare themselves, a wave bigger than anything they had seen hurled down upon the persona and the boat capsized. Now, and, and this is important notes, McDonald. Most boats would have righted themselves after such a wave. The persona did not. Why? It's because its builder had ignored the importance of what was below the waterline. There was no weight down there. There was no ballast and so in a moment when a well-designed keep and adequate ballast might have saved the ship, they were nowhere to be found. The person had concerned himself with the appearance of things and not enough with the needed resilience and stability in the secret, unseen places where storms are withstood. 
Furthermore, because the foolish builder had such confidence in their sailing abilities, they had not contemplated the possibility of a situation that they could not manage. And that's why later investigations revealed that there were no rescue devices aboard, no rafts, no life jackets, no emergency radios. And the result of this mixture of poor planning and blind pride was that the foolish builder was lost at sea. Only when the wreckage of the persona was washed ashore did the builder's boat club discover, or did their friends discover all this. They said, only a fool would design and build a boat like this, much less sell it. A person who builds only above the waterline does not realize that they have built less than half a boat. Didn't they understand that a boat not built with storms in mind is a floating disaster waiting to happen? The foolish builder was never found. Today when people speak about the builder, which is rare, they comment not upon the beauty of the boat, but only upon the silliness of putting out on an ocean where storms are sudden and violent. And doing it with a boat that was really never built for anything else but the vanity of the builder and the praise of spectators. It was in such conversations that the owner of the persona, whose name has long been forgotten, became known as simply the foolish man. And uh, thanks for bearing with me. I know it was a long parable. But that's why we're so explicit about the gospel of grace here. It's because throughout the week, uh, you, we live in a world that is not, is not about the gospel of grace. That teaches us that the things that are matter, that are the, the, the things that everybody can see, the things that are on the outside. And, and so that's why week after week we come to God's word and we're called to repentance and we're wooed back to the Jesus way because unless we're being formed and undergirded by Jesus on the soul level, the deep, like underneath the waterline level, the storms of life will, sh- like will shipwreck us. And, and like, you know, when we say, when Christians say things like, oh, it is by God's grace I'm still standing, like we literally mean that. If not for God's grace, we would not make it. And so we live in the midst of a spiritual battle that doesn't care what kind of, what, like what year car you're, you drive. Doesn't care. Like it does not care how color-coordinated your home is. Doesn't care how beautiful your Christmas tree is. It does not, it does not care like how many people liked your last Instagram post. Doesn't care. Um, we live in a world that doesn't care how fit you are or how much you can bench press. Doesn't even ask you. It will chew you up and spit out the bones like it's nothing. And so if our hope and our security is in any of that stuff, then we have no hope. (laughs) We have no security. And so this morning, as we're kicking off our, our Christmas season, we're doing so by coming back and exploring the arrival of the one who is who meets the deepest need of our soul, Jesus. And so this is God's word. This is our ballast that sees us through the storm. Uh, Luke 1, 26 through 38. This is God's word. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm, I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, has, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. You know, because of the skeptical age in which we live, uh, really, I think when it comes to passages like this that contain, I mean, core fundamental fundamentals of the gospel, like the virgin birth, um, before we can do anything, we first have to address the elephant in the room. Um, and that's, did the virgin birth happen? You know, can we trust the Bible? That's a big deal. And, and this is important because every year, and you've probably noticed this, every year around Christmas or Easter, the Discovery Channel or History Channel or some other channel will have this show on what they call the, quote, historical Jesus. And, and they'll have guests on there that you'll hear them say things like, the virgin birth didn't really happen, the resurrection didn't really happen, it's just legend. And what's interesting is if, if you see the people's names and kind of where they are, you'll, know, you'll notice that um, they never get conservative evangelical scholars, ever. Um, it's usually a liberal theologian or even maybe a secular scholar that is, is who they're interviewing. And, and like for years before he died, one of their favorite per people to get was the uh, Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Sponge. And Sponge, and, and get this, so Sponge is, was not just a pastor, like he was an Episcopal bishop, like he was over lots of churches. Um, John Shelby Sponge didn't believe in the virgin birth, didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, and so he thought that the resurrection was an exit myth that uh, the early church kind of wrote in long after the fact to kind of add this mystique and this legend. Um, and, and so then he thought that you know, that the resurrection was an exit myth. And, and then because all, you know, mythological heroes uh, like Hercules, they also had entrance myths attached to them. So Sponge thought that at some point the early church said, you know, we need to give Jesus an entrance myth to match his exit myth uh, that we also gave him. And so what he and others think is that years after the Gospels were written, um, that somebody came in, and they kind of added that front part about virgin birth that we just read. Um, somebody just came in and added it. Okay, well, and I, look, I apologize for some of y'all. Like, well, let's just talk about Jesus. Um, we're going to talk about Jesus. But this is important because, uh, like, if you go out, I mean, any of our kids go to college, like, this is what they're going to hear. And, and these people, these skeptics, think they have some really, really, really good data. And uh, there are a lot of people's faith who has been shaken like crazy because of things like this. And so this is, this is like utterly important. Okay? 
Well, there's so much to be said that, but first, we need to listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter 1. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of the majesty. That verse is important because it means that the Bible writers knew the difference between a myth and what actually happened. Like They knew that people were probably going to say, you know, this sounds like too good to be true. And so that he wrote that to combat that. He knows the difference between a myth and what actually happened. The second thing is to the claim that the virgin narratives of Matthew and Luke were, were later uh, additions to the text. Um, so many skeptics would claim that both Matthew and Luke have a natural break in the thematic flow right after the virgin narrative. And, and so they would say, they would hold that Matthew and Luke originally didn't have that part. That It started after the, the virgin narrative. And people wrote that in later. It's great. That's when you go to college, watch Discovery Channel, YouTube, that's what you're going to hear. But here's what they don't tell you when they say that. That claim is 100% assumption. 100% assumption. The reality is that there is, is zero evidence from history to suggest that. That's what you're left with when you don't... Well, if you don't believe in the supernatural... If you don't believe in God, then, well, the virgin narrative's in there. we got to explain it. It's in there some reason. you got to explain it somehow. And so here's the reality. It's the earliest manuscripts that archaeologists have unearthed. The earliest copies that we have of Luke and Matthew all have the virgin birth narrative already in them. Um, that's reality, which means the claim that, this, that these things were later additions, it just simply isn't true. Scripture is God's word. It is trustworthy. And, and then third, and this is really kind of, I mean, this is the, the game changer here. And we have to remember that if the virgin birth sounds, it sounds unreasonable today, we've got to know that, it, it, look, it was just as unbelievable back then. You know, you do realize that it took an angel, like showing up and talking to Mary and Joseph to convince them that it was, <laughs> that it was possible, um, that they could, that a virgin could have a baby. And so here's maybe the crux for many is, look, if you believe that the universe was created by an intelligent designer, an intelligent being, then believing in the virgin birth of Jesus is actually super reasonable. You know, it's not that big a deal. As Rebecca McLaughlin suggests, believing that God could make the whole universe out of nothing, but not believing that he could make one baby without a human father. Now that would be that would be irrational. I think she says that's like going to a, an Olympic figure skater, the ones who can do like the, the sow cows and the whatever it is, the luxes and the, the twists and turns, and going up to them and saying, I bet you can't skate in a figure eight. Um, author Glenn Shrivener summarized it this way. He said, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Now, which one is unreasonable? <laughs> So yes, look, the virgin birth happened. Yes, we can trust it. So now to the passage. You know, notice, this is so remarkable. Notice to whom the greatest news ever proclaimed first came to. First came to. You know, we think, still think that big things happen in New York, big things happen in L.A. If we're ever going to make something of ourselves, we've got to move to Nashville, right? Um, people with big followings, 
But when God sent Gabriel with the message of Christmas, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't even go to Judea. No, he went to Nazareth. You know, Nazareth was such a nothing town that Nazareth it was not even mentioned in the entire Old Testament. Not, it's not even mentioned one time. The ancient historian Josephus never mentioned it one time. It's, it's not in any rabbinical writings. Um, and so, like, if this was today, <laughs> there would be no, in, no Wikipedia entry for Nazareth on the Internet. And that's saying something because if you've looked lately, Slaughter, Mississippi is on Wikipedia, you know. But Nazareth wouldn't have made it. No notable people came from there. No big deal. But what we know is, actually, it wasn't until 1962 that any pre-Christian mention of Nazareth was ever found uh, in archaeology. And so Nazareth, what we know now, was a small, shoddy town overrun by Gentiles. Uh, We know it likely never won small town of the year. Probably didn't have cool fireworks and stuff like we do. It didn't have parades. Uh, Remember, Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, it's what some of us may think. um, And I don't want to be offensive, but this is just probably the reality of how people think. Um, it's, it, It may be how some of you think about Grenada Boulevard. Can anything good come from Grenada Boulevard? Like, that's Nazareth. And that's where the message of Christmas first came. And by not going to Jerusalem, that also meant that the angel Gabriel did not go to the temple, the most holy place in all of Israel, but rather the message of Christmas came to the most ordinary of places. It wasn't at church. It was in the lowly home of Mary. You know, most scholars argue or agree that that Mary was likely between the ages of 12 and 14 years old when this happened. Because that was, that was kind of the, the typical age in which girls during this period of time were betrothed to be married. 12, 12 to 14. So we know she was really young. Uh, we know that she was poor. Um, we know that she was in all likelihood illiterate. You know, her knowledge of the scripture would have been limited to what she had either memorized or that she had heard in synagogue. And just like every other poor girl of her town... Her life expectations would would be something like this. You know, she wanted to get married. She would marry humbly. She would have several poor children. And and she would never travel further than a few miles from her home. And then she would die like thousands of others before. And that's Mary's life. And and like the, the most significant thing about Mary was her utter insignificance. And yet the gospel message came to her first. I don't know if God could be any more explicit. And what he's saying is, like, if your life is not Instagrammable, then Christmas is for you. If you feel unworthy, Christmas is for you. That God's favor is not to the strong. It's not to the in crowd. It's not to the proud. It's, it's, it's not to those who think that they've got life by the tail. No, it's for the weary. It came for the broken. Uh, it came for those who are lowly. And, and then notice what the angel said. So that's, that's who it's to. But notice what the message was. Verse 28, the angel Gabriel said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And, and a, a better word for greetings uh, would be rejoice. You know, you hear of angels saying rejoice, rejoice. 
You know, a lot of, you know, this is often said that the most repeated command in the Bible is do not fear. Don't be afraid. Fear not, little flock. You know, those, those types of things. But there's actually a, another command that's even more common. More than anything else, God tells his people in different ways to rejoice in him. He, he doesn't tell you to be happy because you don't have to be happy. But he tells you to rejoice that there's joy in him, to praise him. So that's how Gabriel begins. He says, Mary, you have every reason to be overjoyed because the Lord is with you. You are favored. And you know, many people have have misinterpreted or mistranslated this this idea of the favor of Mary. And you've probably heard in a movie or maybe in the Catholic Church, um, Hail Mary, full of grace. Um, Maybe you think that's a a, a football play, Hail Mary. Um, but what has happened because of a misinterpretation and a mistranslation, this greeting with the angel Gabriel has, has been morphed to the point that instead of Mary just being favored by God, that Mary is the dispenser of grace herself, which has, has resulted in people offering prayers to Mary because Mary can help us out. And some have even suggested that God's favor went to Mary because Mary never sinned in her life. Um, that, that, that she earned that favor because she was sinless. And of course, in the 1800s, that even began, became the official teaching of the Catholic Church and some others called the Immaculate Conception, that she was conceived sinless, that she was born sinless, that she remained sinless her entire life. That's what made her favored of God. And, and so this begs the question then, if we put our the, you know, theologian hats on, why did God actually favor Mary? Why does God favor us? Uh, Why does he favor anyone? Well, here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that the only reason Mary was favored by God and the only reason any of us are favored by God was and is because of God sovereignly choosing to bestow upon her favor. And he does the same with us. And, And we call that grace. It's because of grace. It wasn't because she was sinless. No, Jennifer McNutt wrote... Mary was only worthy of God's choosing because God's choosing made her worthy. That's it. And then what Gabriel said next gives us the explicit gospel. And this is, this is the message of Christmas. Verse 31, he said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And there's so much in a name you know, even Jesus' name proclaims the gospel. We know, you know, Jesus means Yahweh saves or God saves. Which means every time Jesus would call Jesus by name, every time we utter the name Jesus, we are proclaiming the gospel. Uh, every time we, we use the name Jesus, when we say how sweet the name of Jesus sounds, we're saying two things. One, we're, we're saying that, and Mary was saying, and we say that, that we need saving that Mary needs, needed saving. And this is so offensive today. You know, I, I, as a pastor, sometimes people will come up to me, and I don't know why they want to tell me this, but they seem like they need to tell me that they weren't aware that they needed saving. And, um, well, the Bible doesn't mince words. I, I suppose it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what God thinks. The Bible says that all of us have sinned against the creator of the universe. That it's much worse than you thought. And, and, and we all need to, to be whole. We all need saving. 
And, and so like, there's no room for debate, debate or confusion. It, so to say Jesus is like, okay, we need saving. And then second, the second part is every time Mary would say Jesus' name, she was reminded that she couldn't do it herself. That she couldn't dig herself out of that pit. That she could not save herself. And so what it is, is that only God can reconcile us to himself. Like only God can fill the hole in our soul. Only God can save. And on the cross, that's exactly what God did. So we see what began at Christmas. We see that God calls, God saves, and in Christ, God declares you favored. It's all God's doing. You know, it, it's, it's all his grace from A to Z, which means you can't do anything to screw it up. Amen? Amen. Um, that's the message. And so the question is, all right, what, what do we do with this message? That we need to be saved. Jesus saves us. Jesus came and dwelt with us. Well, what, what do we do with this? Well, well, as we close, notice what Mary the first Christian did. And, and real quick, you know, some churches have probably made too much of Mary um, and, you know, declared her, uh, you know, a, a saint and, and have prayed to her. And if that's what some churches have done, then I think some other churches have erred in the other direction. And we would probably be one of those churches that we probably make too little of Mary. You know, we'll talk big of Moses. We'll talk about Abraham. But we don't really like talking about Mary. Um, but throughout Scripture, we see that Mary was actually the first Christian, the first disciple. Before there was Peter or Paul, there was Mary. And, and so first we see that Mary pondered. We see that Mary stopped. And she, she discerned what the angel was talking about. Like, what is this? What are you talking about? So there's this old story about a poet who was uh, telling an old Quaker lady about how just purpose-driven he was. He was telling them about how he learned Portuguese while he took a bath, and then he learned something else while he got dressed, how he gleaned in another field while he had breakfast, and so on and so on. He was always multitasking, filling his day utterly, they said. And to that, the old Quaker lady just said, and when do you think? When do you think? So y'all, in our frantic age, and I'm, and I'm think, I guess this is for all of us, but I'm thinking about parents, of, of youth, of, of anybody that, you know, we think that we have just a little bit of time. Oh, we can watch Netflix. Or, you know, we go on a walk and we're going to have a podcast or music. We're going to be multitasking. But when do you stop? Do you stop? Have you ever stopped to contemplate? Like to really stop and, and, and to think about your sin to think about your Savior? I mean, do you ever stop and ponder the fact that in Christ, you are favored by God, the creator of all? Well, you know, Christmas time may be the most wonderful time of the year to stop and think and, and really discern the things that really count. So that's the first thing. Just, let's just ponder. Let's think about this. But then second and finally... So Mary heard the message, she pondered the message, but then she surrendered to the message. Surrender. You know, Gabriel said that not only would Jesus be a savior that's going to save, but he would also be a king forever. And well, what do you do with a king? What do you do with a king? Well, Westminster, you bow. 
You know, back in the olden days, the king was the reason that you felt secure in your land. You know, the king was the one who protected you. The king was the one, for any reason you had well-being, it was because of the king. So verse 38, Mary says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, God, I'm yours. God, I'm yours. Have your way. Have your way. I wonder if you've ever prayed that or ever thought that. Like, what would happen if, can you imagine a church or imagine Christians in America if we just, if we really pray that? It's like, God, have your way with me. Have your way. I don't think Mary said that flippantly either. You know, Mary knew that the townspeople were going to gossip about her. Like, Mary knew that her reputation would be shot. I mean, was this 12, 13-year-old girl pregnant? What was she doing being pregnant? Um, you know, that, that not only could this end her engagement, but, I mean, this could cost her her life. But yet, when, when God calls, when the Spirit comes, when Jesus saves, it, it's no longer a, like this thought experiment about how, okay, Jesus has grace and he saved me on the cross. But, like, when that hits you in the heart, there's a response. And now, often as American Christians, you know, we, we like to negotiate our terms of surrender, Right? We're like, God, I, 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 look, Jesus, I'll give you parts of my life, but, but not everything. And we may say we love Jesus. Oh, man, we love him. But we won't surrender our Sundays. We won't surrender our time. Uh, we won't surrender our lifestyle. We won't surrender our money. We won't surrender our relationships. You know, we'll, we'll say, Jesus, like, we, we love you. Like, we, we love what you say about love, and we love what you say about mercy. It's so sweet. But we won't surrender. Like We will not bow to what the Bible says about X, Y, or Z. And of course, this is really telling because it shows that what we really want, if we were super honest in America, we really just want a consultant. We really just want a life coach. We don't want a king because kings have to be surrendered to. And we, we definitely don't want a God. And we, we want a life coach that will make recommendations and we'll thank them for their counsel. But in the end, like, we want veto power. It's my life, my choice. But y'all, Christmas, you've got to see this. Christmas comes in like a wrecking ball, destroying all that. And it offers us so much more that you have favor with God in Christ. And so to be a follower of Christ is to respond to that favor by saying, God, I belong to you body and soul. Have thine own way. Have thine own way. Let me pray for us. Father, as Jesus taught his disciples and taught us to pray, that's what we're learning, Lord, that your will will be done on earth, that your will will be done in our lives, in our families, our careers as it is in heaven. So, Father, as we approach this time of Christmas, it's a beautiful time, wonderful time of the year. But, Lord, give us time to stop and to think. Uh, give us time to just to respond in joyful surrender to the fact that like, we are so not ours, that we serve the King of kings. And so, Lord, may you come and capture our hearts, and may we delight in the favor that we have uh, in you. And Lord, as we come to your table, uh, we ask that you would now uh, take these, these common, ordinary things that we probably see every day, 
and that you would set them apart to be a means of your grace to your people to remind us, remind us of the favor that we have in Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.